0: Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. As always, please feel free to check out our episode description. There you will find our timestamps, as well as our links to our TikTok and Instagram, and a support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. Please be sure to follow, download, and recommend this podcast to a friend. Today we are going to be talking about a case that continues to make me rack my brain as to why this person did what they did. It still doesn't make sense to me no matter how much research I've done, no matter how many times or how many things I've heard about it. It does not make sense. Today we are going to be talking about the tragic accident on the Taconic State Parkway in 2009 that was caused by none other than Diane Schuler. This case is so strange to me. If you haven't heard of it, just wait. If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because some things make sense and some things just do not. And this is definitely on my list of cases where I would love to know what happened before my time comes. Same with the John Bene Ramsey case. Like I just want to know what happened. But with that, let's get right into the case. Diane Hance, which was her maiden name, was born on November 13th, 1972 in Floral Park, New York. She had four brothers and she was the only girl and her parents had actually separated and her mom abandoned the family when Diane was only nine years old. Now she didn't talk about this too much. She kept her distance from the subject. She kind of just moved on with her life and vowed to raise her children better than her mother raised her because she literally just did her siblings actually reconciled with their mother later on in life but diane decided not to she was good leaving her mother where she was at in her life and that was enough for her and she moved on diane was described as being a hands-on no nonsense person she was the matriarch of her family she ran the household and she was just always on top of everything she made sure everything was just so her kids were just always very well taken care of and a lot of people said that she was just the perfect mom. Diane eventually married a man named Daniel Schuler, And Daniel always said that she was the perfect wife. She did everything right in his eyes. They had two children named Aaron and Brian. And as I said, she was very involved in their lives. She was known as pretty much the typical PTA parent, volunteered for everything, was always there for her kids, always had the cupcakes and the cookies ready for the bake sale. She just got a lot done. And she was a very responsible parent. And this is what everybody who knew Diane always said about her. There wasn't anybody more responsible when it came to their kids and just life in general than Diane Schuler. So by 2009, the Shuler family was living in West Babylon in Long Island, New York. And Diane was working during the day and Daniel was working at night. Now this made it hard for them to spend quality time together because their schedules were opposite. And that can be pretty hard on a marriage. Not to mention, Diane was the one taking care of the kids. When Daniel went to work at night, she was still there with the children. So when she got off work, she was with the kids while Daniel was trying to get some sleep, I'm assuming, in order to go into work that night. So she was was the sole caregiver majority of the time. But it's hard to have a spouse where you have opposing schedules. So the Schulers decided that they wanted to take a camping trip with their kids and their nieces, Diane's brother Warren's children. And they wanted to go to the Hunter Lake campground in Parksville, New York, which was about three hours from where they lived in West Babylon. Now they had been here before. They were known to go to this campground a lot. Diane was actually pretty close to the person who ran the campground. So that just goes to show how often they went. As I said, Diane and Daniel had two kids. They had a daughter and a son. Their daughter's name was Erin and she was two years old at the time. And their son's name was Brian and he was five. Diane also, as I said, brought her brother's daughters. Emma, who was nine years old, Allison, who was seven, and Katie, who was five. Jackie, Warren's wife and the mother of the girls, trusted Diane and Daniel so much. They had known them for over 20 years. Jackie knew that Diane was the type of mother that was very responsible would always take care of the kids because her kids were so well taken care of. Jackie would always say that the girls absolutely loved their Aunt Diane. They were obsessed with her. They just loved being around her. They loved being around Aaron and Brian. So it was set to be a very fun trip. Daniel went to the campsite first with a family dog so that way he could go and get everything set up while Diane came a little bit later with the kids. She decided to borrow her brother Warren's minivan for the weekend, a 2003 Ford Windstar minivan. Side note, this is actually the same kind of minivan my mom used to drive. So when I heard that, I was like, oh wow, that's interesting. I'm assuming that Diane borrowed her brother's minivan because she was taking way more children than she normally did. She was gonna have five kids with her instead of her usual two. And the camping trip went off without a hitch. They had a great time. The family got to spend a lot of quality time together, which was hard because again, they had opposing schedules. And there's nothing like getting to hang out with your cousins. I mean, I'm sure Brian and Aaron loved hanging out with Emma, Allison and Katie and vice versa. So fun being able to just vibe with your cousins. You get along so much better, you know, (laughs) because you don't live with them. So there's not like all that sibling rivalry and arguing as much, at least in my opinion. But some cousins, you know, they, they do have that dynamic. I can't imagine how fun that trip was for them. This just makes what happened a few days later all the more tragic. At least we can say that they were able to spend this time together before this horrible tragedy occurred just a few days later. On July 26th, 2009, Daniel decided to wake up around 6 a.m. and he started cleaning up the campsite. He woke Diane up around 7 a.m. to start getting the kids ready because they had a three-hour drive ahead of them. So they just wanted to get ahead of the traffic as quickly as possible. By 9.30 a.m., everybody was set and ready to go. Daniel had cleaned up the campsite. Diane had gotten herself and all the kids ready. So Daniel went ahead first with the dog and most of the camping gear while Diane and the kids decided to make a few stops on their way home. At 9 56 AM, she decided to stop at a McDonald's in Liberty, New York. So the kids could eat. This McDonald's was about 20 minutes away from the campsite. And Diane and the kids are seen on surveillance at the McDonald's. And according to workers, everybody was behaving normally. Diane spoke to one of the workers and there were said to be no odd behavior reported. She wasn't acting odd. She wasn't acting off. She was perfectly normal around 10 46 a.m. the minivan diane and the kids were in was seen on surveillance pulling up to a sunoco gas station and diane was seen walking into the gas station and according to the cashier she asked if they had any pain medication but when they said that they didn't she was seen walking back out and she left around 10 58 a.m. and once again diane appeared to be acting very normal and nothing seemed out of the ordinary nothing seemed out of character she was just walking in walked right back out everything was fine after leaving diane gets on interstate 86 and 87 around 11 a.m. just couple minutes later, as time goes on, people that were driving on the interstate started calling 911. And they were reporting that a person in a red minivan was driving very erratically. They were weaving in and out of lanes. They were following other cars really close and they were going really fast. And this type of driving was really worrying some people. At 1137 AM, Diane decides to call her brother Warren, letting him know that her and the kids were going to be a little late getting back because of traffic. So they try to get out of the traffic but I guess it didn't really work because they were still in it, according to Diane. She also mentioned to him that she wasn't feeling well. So Warren asked her to pull over, but Diane decided to keep going. At 11.45 a.m., passengers in a passing car noticed a woman on the side of the road, hunched over like she may have been throwing up. A little bit later, she was seen by another witness at a nearby rest stop doing the exact same thing. People actually called 911, reporting that this person was on the side of the road, looking like they were sick, looking that they were throwing up, but no one stopped to help, which I think is very odd. But maybe if somebody had intervened, they could have avoided the tragedy that was about to happen. At 12.58 PM, Diane calls Jackie, and Jackie said that Diane just seemed really out of it in the way that she was talking. And out of nowhere, the call just ends after two minutes. And I'm going to play a clip of Jackie explaining this call. Mommy, something's wrong with Aunt Diane. Mommy, something's wrong with Aunt Diane. And she was crying. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand. I said, well, what do you mean? And and I could hear um, Allison crying in the background. I said, let me talk to Aunt Diane. And so Diane got on the phone and well, she just kept saying, they're playing, they're having fun. She just didn't sound right. Diane didn't. No, she wasn't making any sense. And then out of nowhere, the call just ended after two minutes. Warren walked in as the call was ending. So he decided to call Diane back because by this point, him and Jackie were pretty worried. But when he called, Diane didn't pick up. So he continued to try and call her as much as possible, but she just wasn't answering. And when she finally did answer, it was one of his daughters. Emma. She said that Aunt Diane was sick. She was driving crazy. She couldn't see and she couldn't speak. And Emma was crying. She was very clearly upset. As Jackie said as well, they were just crying in the background and no one could understand what was going on. Warren asked Emma where they were so he could try and get to them. Emma said she saw a sign that said Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow, which was the ninth exit on I-87. Now by this point, it's clear that something is very, very wrong. Jackie and Warren asked to speak to diane so diane takes the phone from emma and now she's talking to jackie and warren she told them that she was disoriented and she kept calling warren by her husband's name it's clear that something's going on with diane but no one knows what it is but clearly it was bad enough to where the kids could tell and they were noticing and they were scared diane kept saying that the kids were fine and that they were just playing around but it's clear that that wasn't true. Warren asked Diane to just stay put so he can come and get her because he's like, you are not driving anymore. Pull over, stay where you are. I'm coming to get you. But Once again, the call just cut out and it ended abruptly. And then Diane left her phone on the side of the road, which is just so strange. What would possess you to do that? Like so many things are in in this case that just do not make sense to me. So Warren and Jackie are very concerned for the safety of the kids. And they knew that that call was very strange and that something was not right. You don't wanna hear the person driving a bunch of kids in the car saying that they're disoriented and that they can't, can't see. That's terrifying. Now, they have no idea what was going on in that car. They have no clue, but they know that something isn't right. So at 1.15 p.m., Warren tries to call Diane back a few more times, but there was no answer because, as I said, she had left her phone on the side of the road. Warren and Jackie wasted no time getting in the car and trying to get to the last place that their daughter, Emma, said they were. Remember, she gave them the name, Sleepy Hollow and Terrytown, So they were on their way over there. They also decided to get some of their friends to call 911 and kind of get ahead of them to report what the kids had told them. So they kind of just wanted to see if the police could get ahead of it while they were on the way, which is honestly pretty smart. Around this time, Warren decided to call Daniel and let him know what was going on with Diane and the kids. Of course, he was very alarmed and pretty confused because he had just seen Diane that morning and I'm sure he didn't think anything was wrong otherwise he probably wouldn't have let her drive the kids. So as soon as he gets this call he immediately drives upstate with his brother and they are going to see if they can find Diane and get the kids out of the car safely. They wanted to get Diane off the road just in case she was having a medical emergency. Clearly whatever was going on was impairing her driving. At around 1 30 p.m two more drivers called and reported that a woman in a minivan was driving too close to the edge of the road. And as this call came in, Diane was entering an exit ramp onto the Taconic State Parkway. Now just saying entering an exit ramp should kind of give you an idea that what was happening was about to be very very wrong. You don't enter an exit ramp, you exit an exit ramp. Now there were two signs at the end of this exit ramp saying one way and do not enter, making it very clear that whoever decided to enter on this road or drive in the wrong direction would be driving in the opposite direction of traffic which is, for obvious reasons, really, really bad. Not to mention, she had kids in the car. There's other people on the road, completely unsuspecting. Imagine driving past this exit ramp and you see a car going down it coming towards you. That's just terrifying. Or you're just passing it and you see the car coming down and you're like, um, I don't think that's supposed to be happening. I've actually watched somebody go down the wrong side of the road before. Maybe she got confused or she just didn't know. Luckily, and this is crazy, there actually happened to be an officer right next to her in an unmarked vehicle. So he like immediately put his sirens on and stopped traffic. So thank God for that. But it's very interesting to see somebody go Going down the wrong side of the road. It's like a surreal experience. So I can't imagine how scared and terrified people were watching this woman go down the wrong side of the highway, not just the regular road, which would be bad enough, a highway where people were going like pretty fast. But Diane continued to drive in the wrong direction despite all of the signs around telling her not to. She was going south on the northbound side of the Taconic State Parkway at 75 miles per hour. Now it didn't take long for other drivers to start calling 911 reporting that somebody was driving very fast in the opposite direction of traffic. And people were saying that this car was going pin straight down the wrong side of the road and looking straight ahead. They weren't going side by side, up and down, like they were going pin straight. There was nothing stopping them. I'm going to play a little clip of somebody describing what it was like watching this. It was literally as if we weren't even on the road. Yeah. She's coming toward us, you know. I mean, I'm blinking my lights and beeping Beep the in. horn. and She's flailing. And we drove up on the grass because otherwise we would have been hit. She never put on a brake. She never even, her eyes didn't even move. It was just, I'm going where I want to go. I'm doing what I need to do. Yeah. I'm, I'm where I want to be. And then she went around the bend onto the highway itself. And here is another witness account from a man who also called 911. And I will play his account of what it was like seeing Diane driving the wrong direction, as well as his 911 call the day of the accident. It was very surreal seeing it coming at you. So what you had to do was, you know, thank God there was nobody on the side. I was able to go over a couple of lanes as the van came by me. And I said at the time, 70 miles an hour because it was speeding right by. Dead pin straight. That like pin straight. Wasn't doing this, was dead pin straight. Right after it happened, that's when I called 911. See, police 911. Yeah, you got a guy driving south on a northbound Peconic Parkway. Ooh, God! I was in the left lane. Uh, just pleasant, but he's going like about out of hell. He should be already on the same parkway right now. It's a minivan. Now, by this point, 911 calls were coming in left and right of people reporting that there was a red minivan going in the wrong direction on the Taconic State Parkway, and they were going really fast. And a lot of people said that she didn't appear to be distressed or confused or anything. It was almost like Diane was literally just going straight, just driving is if she wasn't doing anything wrong. She wasn't swerving out of the way of other cars. They were moving out of her way. Given her behavior on the phone with Warren and Jackie, who even knows if she knew she was on the wrong side of the highway. I mean, she did say on the phone that she said she couldn't see. She felt disoriented. She wasn't really making sense. So for all we know, maybe she couldn't even tell that she wasn't driving in the right direction of traffic, which could explain why she maybe wasn't moving out of the way for people and she just kept driving. Diane drove like this for 1.7 miles when she suddenly crashed head on into another vehicle at 85 miles per hour. This vehicle was a 2004 Chevrolet Trailblazer. And when Diane hit this vehicle, hers slid off the road down an embankment before landing on the grass in the median and catching on fire. The Chevy Trailblazer that she hit skid into oncoming traffic and was hit by a 2002 Chevy Tracker. This crash was horrific. There's already three vehicles vehicles Involved in it. 911 calls came in immediately to report this crash, and I'm going to play some of that audio for you here. 911. Listen, uh, I'm an all shooting to the police officer. Okay, are you out at the scene right now? Yes, I'm at the scene. Okay, are there any injuries? No, we have fatalities? Fatality at the scene? Yeah, we have fatalities. Okay, stand, stand the falls down to give you EMS, okay? Hold on. We have a possible, uh, we have a possible car fire. Corp, make sure I'm up as well. So the car fire and a fatality? Yeah, we were, we were fatalities. We were fatalities. Something about hearing that off duty police officer say we have fatalities after the 911 operator asks if there's injuries is just so chilling. I mean, he could just tell immediately that this was a very serious accident. These were not just, there were not just injuries. This was very serious. There are fatalities and we need somebody to get out here immediately. In the 911 call, you could hear that he said you might want to get an ambulance out here too because we have a possible car fire and the car may blow. up. So as I said, Diane's car caught on fire after landing in the grass. After the collision, people immediately started pulling over and they were trying to help because how do you see something like that and not stop and see what you can do, especially when you know there's children in the car and people were trying to do what they could to possibly pull people out of the car because it was on fire. But upon looking at the scene, it was clear that there were most likely no survivors. The car was in horrible condition and people were just doing what they could to save anybody that may be left inside the car. But the kids were all kind of laying in the car as if they weren't wearing seatbelts. And nobody was in their car seat when the crash was over. According to witnesses, that's what it looked like, that no one had been wearing a seatbelt. Diane, who was 36 years old, along with her daughter Erin, who was two, Emma, who was nine, Allison, who was seven, and Katie, who was five years old, all passed away. Diane, Erin, and two of her nieces were most likely killed instantly one of her nieces actually made it to the hospital but unfortunately she was pronounced dead a short time later diane's son brian who was five years old was actually found hidden underneath of the girls and he was immediately rushed to the hospital and miraculously he survived But he did suffer two broken legs, a broken arm, a severe head injury, and acquired an eye condition known as oculomotor nerve palsy in his right eye. And this is a result of the damaging of the third cranial nerve. And it causes issues with eye movement. He had to get surgeries and he really had to recover from this injury. In the Chevy Trailblazer that Diane had initially hit had three men inside. And their names were Michael Bastardi, who was 81, his son, Guy Bastardi, who was 49, and their friend, Daniel Longo, who was 71. And they were all killed in this car accident. These three men were from Yonkers, New York, and they were on their way to a family cookout in Yorktown. And it's so sad that they were just minding their business, driving on the way to a family event, and their lives were taken. Imagine how hard it was for their family members to be waiting for them at the cookout, probably wondering where they were. And then they hear that there's this horrible accident only to find out that their family members were killed. It's just heartbreaking. The passengers in the third car, the Chevy Tracker, luckily only suffered minor injuries and they all survived. And I can't imagine how they feel knowing that they were involved in such a horrific crash that luckily didn't take their lives. I'm sure that's a very surreal feeling for them because they very easily could have suffered much worse injuries, but they weren't hit by Diane who was going very fast, which was most likely the impact that killed majority of the victims. So the Chevy Chakra being hit was more of a residual effect. Luckily, they did not sustain the brunt of the force of this accident. In total, Eight people passed away. In this accident and it was said to be the deadliest crash in Westchester County in 75 years. Diane's son Brian was in the hospital for three months recovering from his injuries and it's a miracle that he survived even though he was struggling with his eye injury as well as a few other conditions but he was still with us. On July 30th 2009 the funerals for Diane, Aaron, Emma, Allison and Katie were all held at Our Lady of Victoria Church in Florida. Park, New York, and over a thousand people were in attendance. This accident touched a lot of people. It was just so sad to know that those children had passed away in such a horrific accident. Just the details surrounding the case made a lot of people very interested in what may have happened and what may have caused this. Warren spoke at his sister's funeral, and I'm going to play a clip of that here. My sister was a phenomenal mother, aunt, and friend. And all of us are grateful for the love and care that she showered upon our entire family, especially all of our children. What we ask all of you going forward is that you keep my girls, my sister, and my niece, and all of us in your daily prayers. There's a miracle child in all of this. Our dear nephew Brian, who's getting better and stronger by the day, And he will be loved by more people than he will ever understand. Love your children. Cherish your children. (laughs) Kiss your children. (laughs) And don't forget. Warren saying those words about Diane, even though she was responsible for the death of his three children, really speaks to just how close they were, their bond, their relationship, and just how great of a person Diane was to everyone, which just makes what happened all the more shocking. I mean, she truly was an amazing person and an amazing mother. And the people in her life admired her and everyone still to this day speaks to it. So it just doesn't make any sense. How did this happen? What caused her? To do this? What caused her to be so disoriented and so confused that she drove down the wrong side of the road? Hearing Warren break down like that is heartbreaking. I mean, he literally lost all all of his children. I cannot begin to imagine what it would be like to experience that level of pain. Like the strength that it would take to go forward and carry on in life is just something that I can't even think of the type of person that could possess that. I mean, it's just horrible to even have to imagine. So of course this crash had to be investigated to figure out why diane was driving down the wrong side of the highway in the first place nobody could understand why this happened and what may have caused her to react this way or do this when investigators searched what was left of the minivan they found an empty broken bottle of absolute vodka on the floor of the car on the driver's side diane was not known to drink by anybody who knew her And most people who knew her said they had never even seen her drunk before. So it didn't make sense why she would choose to get drunk with a car full of kids and a three hour drive ahead of her. Just was not fitting with her character in any way, shape or form. And it was a very shocking find. Daniel went on to say that bottle was most likely there throughout the camping season. Sometimes they'll make margaritas, pina coladas. You know, they use the vodka intermittently whenever they go and travel, which is normal, but normally it was in the back of the car, it was in the trunk. Daniel could not explain why this bottle of vodka was found on the floor of the car next to the driver's seat. On August 4th, 2009, the toxicology report for Diane came out and her blood alcohol level was 0.19%, which was twice the legal limit in New York of 0.08%. So this means that Diane was driving drunk, very drunk, might I add, while she had the kids in the car. And this is the part that confuses me. Why? Why did she decide to get drunk? Diane also had high levels of THC in her system, meaning that she had smoked marijuana within the past a few hours or 24 hours. And when this came out, people who knew her were very, very confused. As I said, Diane was not known to be a drinker at all. And Jackie, who had lost all of her kids in the crash, had known Diane for 20 years and was shocked. That was the last thing she would have ever expected. I mean, it made no sense why a responsible person like Diane would get drunk knowing all of the little lives that she had in her hands. I mean, I've been saying this the whole time. She was a devoted, reliable mother. So hearing that she was extremely intoxicated at the time of this crash just didn't resonate with the people who knew her it didn't resonate with daniel no one could believe it and i can't imagine how shocking that must feel to hear that about someone that you think you know Diane's husband, Daniel, he refused to accept that Diane was drunk when the car crashed and he came out and defended her publicly. He did a lot of interviews trying to clear her name. By this point, Diane was seen in the headlines and the press as the perfect mom who had a secret drinking problem. And people were very attracted to the story because it seemed juicy and sensational and oh, the PTA mom who snapped. People were very into this, but people weren't looking at the fact that children were killed, lives were lost. This isn't just a headline. Now, one thing that was interesting was that Diane's autopsy did not show any evidence of long-term alcohol abuse, meaning that her liver was intact, her internal organs were intact. They showed no type of damage. So it couldn't be that she was a secret alcoholic or maybe she was and she had only just recently developed the issue. So there was no long-term damage. Now, Daniel questioned the accuracy of the toxicology Report, as I said, because he just knew his wife, he knew that she would not put her kids in harm's way like that. And he thought that it was strange that the bottle was on the floor in the front. But as I said, he couldn't explain it, but he just said that no, there's no way she drank that whole rest of the bottle, knowing that she had to drive the kids. Daniel and his legal team later revealed that there was some drinking going on that weekend, even though they had initially came out and said that there wasn't the weekend of them camping. He said, no, she wasn't drinking. And then they later came out and said, well, she drank a little bit, you know, but nothing crazy she didn't get drunk she was just sipping and a lot of people criticized Daniel for lying the first time. I think he just didn't want to fuel the reports of people blaming Diane for being a secret alcoholic. Regardless of what happened the weekend of the camping trip, she was not drunk the morning of the crash according to Daniel because he had seen her that morning. He did, however, admit that Diane did smoke marijuana occasionally. It helped her sleep at night and it helped her manage joint pain. Now, remember earlier I said everybody that came in contact with Diane that day said that she was behaving pretty normally including the employee at the McDonald's that she had stopped and talked to. You know, she with the kids, they said that she was being very normal. The gas station worker said she was normal. She just came in, asked for the pain medication, and left. She wasn't stumbling. She didn't appear to be off in any way. No one reported that Diane was acting drunk or behaving strange at all. So what happened between the time she left the gas station and the time the accident occurred? Something happened in that window of time, but nobody knows. Now, the family has tried to ask Brian what happened in the car because he is the only survivor of the crash, but all he's ever said was that mommy's head hurt and she couldn't see. He's given no other information information. Maybe when he gets older, he'll share a little bit more. Maybe things will start coming back to him. He was only five at the time. And for all we know, he probably trauma blocked it out. He's probably so scarred by this event and what happened that maybe his brain is protecting him from it, which is very possible. I was actually in a really bad car accident when I was four years old. Luckily, I wasn't hurt at all, but it could have been very, very bad. And my accident was also in a minivan. But sometimes when I look back on it, it almost feels like it was a dream. I can't really say like what exactly happened, other than our car just flipped over. And I remember screaming and getting out and getting in an ambulance and my mom crying. Like I really don't remember a whole lot of what led up to it at all. And I think sometimes with things like this, they happen so fast that your brain doesn't even allow you to register what is going on sometimes, especially when you're very young. I feel like my brain tells me that that was a dream and that it didn't really happen in order to protect me from just how scary it was. Now, let's get into some theories of what may have caused Diane to get drunk behind the the wheel, drive down the wrong direction of the road and crash the car. One theory that's pretty interesting is the tooth pain theory. So going back to Diane's trip to the gas station, remember I said she was looking for pain medication and when they didn't have it, She just left back out. Now, we still don't know why she was looking for this pain medication, but according to one of Diane's friends, she had been having a nagging tooth pain for a while, and it had gotten worse the week of the camping trip. After further investigation, it was discovered that Diane was actually supposed to have a tooth extracted a long time ago, but she decided not to because she was afraid of the dentist, which... I completely understand. It can be scary having dental work done. But people argue that Diane may have drank a lot that day to mask the pain in her tooth. And maybe she got too drunk by accident. And maybe that's why she got sick on the side of the road because she wasn't a drinker. But why would somebody who never drinks decide to drink to mask tooth pain with a car full of children? According to the people who knew her, she was responsible enough to maybe just wait till she got home to get some pain medication or maybe stop at another gas station or store If it hurt her that bad to get drunk in order to mask the pain, wouldn't she have just stopped somewhere else? But she didn't. The next theory is that Diane suffered a medical emergency behind the wheel, which affected her vision, her brain, and her motor skills, which caused her to be confused and drive down the wrong side of the highway. Now, this theory mostly comes from Daniel, Diane's husband. He argued that she may have suffered this medical emergency behind the wheel, such as a stroke, which can affect vision and speech. And these were the same issues that Diane's niece, Emma, said she was having. She said, Aunt Diane can't see, she wasn't making sense, she was forgetting things, she was calling her brother by her husband's name, like she was just very confused. But the autopsy showed no indication that Diane had suffered any kind of stroke or medical emergency whatsoever. So this theory has kind of been disproven. I think Daniel just wanted to give another reason as to why Diane did this instead of the fact that she was drunk. The last theory, and it's so sad that this theory is the most upsetting, but for some reason it just seems like the most plausible, which is just horrible. But my last theory is that Diane just snapped. What else can explain why she chose to drink this much while there were children in the car? Diane was always seen by everybody as the perfect mom, the perfect parent. She had everything together, but maybe this cost her a lot of stress. I mean, when people have stuff together, stands to reason they're doing a lot of work behind the scenes to give off this appearance. And this can really get to a person over time, especially when you feel like you don't have any help, which I'll get into a little bit later. Diane did a lot for her kids. She was working full time and she was probably really, really stressed not saying in any way shape or form that that's an excuse this is simply a theory of what people were saying may have happened in june of 2010 the new york state police released their final report regarding the accident and they concluded once again that diane was heavily intoxicated and this contributed to the crash due to the fact that diane's reckless driving caused the deaths of all eight crash victims including herself not to mention that none of the kids in diane's car were wearing seat belts this was what diane's family didn't want to hear her friends, just couldn't believe it. But I mean, there was no other explanation as to why this crash occurred. There just wasn't another reason. I mean, this is, she was drunk. But I think people are just having a hard time coming to terms with it because she just wasn't a drinker. She goes from never drinking or hardly drinking to drinking so much that she crashed her car and killed almost everyone inside, as well as three other people. Like, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't register. The Bastardi family, who was related to the three victims who passed away, decided to sue Daniel Shuler and Warren Hance. Not sure why Warren was sued because his children also passed away in the crash, but I'm assuming they did this because it was his minivan that was being driven by Diane when the crash occurred. But either way, I don't really see that as a reason to sue him. I mean, he wasn't even there. Daniel and Diane's sister-in-law Jay decided to spend $30,000 to hire a private investigator to investigate Diane's autopsy and see if they could find another cause of why this accident occurred. And they wanted to do this in order to counter the suit against them and come up with another explanation to pretty much clear Diane's name and say that they were not liable. I don't really know why Daniel was being sued either now that I think about it because once again, he wasn't there or involved as far as we know. Daniel and Diane's sister-in-law Jay were even going to have Diane's body exhumed and they were going to test her hair for drugs. This was supposed to be filmed for HBO for a $100,000 but it never ended up happening for some reason. Their private investigator did come to the same conclusion as the New York State Police which was that Diane was drunk and that caused the crash, but no one wanted to accept this, which I can understand because it's just hard to come to terms with when you feel like, you know, your spouse, you know, your friend and you just can't see them doing something so irresponsible. I mean, I know people that don't really drink that much. And if I heard this about them, I'd be like, there's no way. So I do understand how they feel. But at the end of the day, the facts are the facts. They're right there. And maybe there were just some things you didn't know about this person. Or maybe Daniel did know and he just didn't want to admit this to the public because he wanted to preserve Diane's public image. You can see all of this playing out on the HBO documentary. There's something wrong with Aunt Diane. I've seen it twice now and it's actually really, really good and very well put together. It's just hard to watch the family try to reconcile and come to terms with what happened, even though... They're really not coming to terms with it. It's like you're just watching them be very in denial. Maybe deep down they do believe it, they just don't wanna say. I can also see how this can be very triggering for the Bastardi and the Longo family who also lost family members in the crash. Refuting what seems to be the only explanation for why their family members were taken definitely puts salt in an already very painful wound. How are they supposed to move forward and reconcile with what happened to their family member when other family members of the person who was responsible are denying that this is how it went down? In July of 2011, Jackie Hance filed a lawsuit against Dan Daniel, her brother-in-law, on the grounds that her daughters suffered mental anguish and fear of impending death right before the accident occurred. Jackie having to hear her children cry in the car, not knowing what was going to happen, knowing that they were in danger, is horrifying to think about. For their lives to have been taken, and they tried to do what they could to let their parents know, hey, there's something wrong, like, please come get us, this is where we are. And the fact that they were so terrified in their last few moments is just... I don't even want to think about it because they're so young and they didn't deserve to have to feel such fear in their young little lives. And that was how they spent their last moments. It's just not fair. On July 26th, 2011, exactly two years to the day the crash took place, Daniel decided to sue the state of New York, claiming they didn't keep the road safe, which contributed to to the crash like there weren't a bunch of visible signs letting drivers know not to enter the exit ramp that Diane in fact did. The signs literally say do not enter and wrong way. Now maybe Diane was not able to see but that is not the state of New York's fault. They put up as many signs as they could. If Diane could not see them due to being intoxicated then that is her fault and her responsibility. You can't sue the state for that. What are they supposed to do? Have sirens blaring like Daniel also sued Warren because it was his van involved in the crash, even though Diane was the one driving it. So he kind of did the same thing that the Bastardi family did, which I'm sorry to me just really does not make a lot of sense. I just I don't get it. I really don't. And I feel bad for Daniel because he lost his wife and his daughter in the crash. But trying to point the finger at everybody else, including somebody who also lost people in the crash is just not okay. I feel like he's trying to use these lawsuits to cope with what happened and hold someone responsible. But ultimately there's no one that Daniel can hold responsible for what happened other than his wife. And I guess you can make the same argument for Jackie suing Daniel because he also wasn't involved and lost people in the crash as well. But yet she sued him. But I think she more so sued him more for mental reasons because he kept bringing shit back up and doing a bunch of interviews, disputing literal scientific facts. Like I said, I understand it's hard for him to accept what happened and that his wife was the one who caused it. But you can't be pointing the finger at the families of the victims. I mean, you are a family of the victim as well. So I feel like you should just find another way to cope. I know it's hard. I've never experienced anything like this, but he's making it a lot harder for other people to move forward by trying to point the finger at them in response because he can't cope with what his wife did. By July of 2014, all of the lawsuits were either dismissed or settled and nobody ended up being held liable for anything. At the end of the day, the only person who was really at fault was Diane and she was gone. She couldn't be held responsible for her actions because she was no longer alive. So there's really no one else to blame that's still here. The only person that can be held responsible is the person who passed away. Now here's what I think. This case has literally kept me up at night. Just want to say that because I literally just can't fathom why such a reliable and loving mother would put the lives of her children and nieces at risk just to get drunk. Given the way she's been described by the people who knew her and her friends, it just does not... I can't, my mind will not let me compute why she did it. And I still don't even know what to think, to be honest. But here is my very loose theory because I am still questioning it. I think Diane was a very together person and she just had everything together all the time, but I think she got overwhelmed taking care of the kids. Not saying she didn't love taking care of them because she was great at it, but I think it just got to be a lot for her. And remember earlier I said, her and Daniel had opposing schedules. Diane worked during the day and he worked at night. And it was said by a lot of people who knew them that Diane did take on more of the responsibility when it came to taking care of the children. And her friends would say that they just didn't understand how she did it all. But I think she gave a lot of herself to become such a perfect mother to make up for the fact that her mother was not there for her. So I think she put a lot of pressure on herself to be a great mom and- she just couldn't take it anymore. I think she just got really, really stressed. And I think there was no long-term damage to her organs because maybe she had just recently started drinking, as I said earlier, to cope with the stress. And maybe Daniel didn't know because she purposely did it when he wasn't around. He worked at night and say, Diane, you know, she puts the kids to bed, Daniel's at work. She can get drunk and sleep it off by the morning. And he would never know. And maybe she hid the bottles really, really well. Maybe she hid them in her car car, hid them in public trash cans. Maybe she did everything she could to conceal it and was very good at it. People can be very good at hiding their addiction, especially when they're really into image and how things look. And like I said, this is still a very loose theory. I still don't even know if I believe it, but I just feel like there's no other explanation as to why she decided to get drunk. Maybe this happened to be the day that she snapped. Maybe Diane was more stressed on that camping trip than we know. The only other person that was there is Brian and Daniel. And Brian, he was so young at the time. Daniel, for all we know, he could not being the most honest to preserve Diane's public image. Now, as I said, there is an HBO documentary about this case and it's called, There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. And I've seen it twice. It's very, very good. And there's a part in the documentary where it was clear that Daniel was struggling to take care of his surviving son, Brian, without Diane, because she was the one who did everything. She had the responsibility of the kids. And whenever Daniel was home during the day, I'm pretty sure the kids were at school or in daycare. Daniel even said in the documentary that he never wanted kids and that Diane was the one who did. So it's clear, like I said, that Diane was the sole caretaker. I even thought it was a little odd that they drove separately to and from the camping trip. Diane was just responsible for the kids, getting them ready, feeding them, driving them. And all Daniel had to do was clean up the camping site and take the dog. Not trying to throw shade, but like why couldn't they have done all that together? I just have a feeling that Daniel really didn't pull his weight that much while Diane was alive because she was just always there and he depended on her to do a lot. So having to take care of Brian by himself I think was very very hard on him. And as I said you know this was depicted in the documentary but Diane's sister-in-law Jay she was helping Daniel raise Brian because it was clear that he was having a rough time. But she was so overwhelmed after just a few weeks because Daniel wasn't really doing anything. She was supposed to be helping him. Not taking care of everything. I think because Daniel had Jay, there, he kind of was like, okay, another woman's around. I can chill. I don't have to do much. So if Jay got exhausted and fed up after a few weeks just taking care of Brian, imagine how exhausted and fed up Diane was after years of taking care of Brian and Aaron. I definitely think that Daniel was just not very good at pulling his weight. Diane just didn't have a lot of help. She got very stressed, and maybe she really did just snap. Warren and Jackie Hance decided to start the Hance Family Foundation, which focused on running self-esteem programs for young girls and promotes social and emotional learning. The reason why they wanted to promote self-esteem programs is mainly because their girls, Emma, Allison, and Katie, who they lost, lived every day with confidence. And they wanted to give other young girls the chance to possess this as well. And I will make sure I put the link to the foundation and the website for the foundation in the episode description so you guys can go ahead and check that out. I think it's an amazing cause. The fact that they were able to turn their pain into something positive like this is very admirable. On October 11th, 2011, Jackie and Warren welcomed a baby girl named Casey Rose. Jackie actually had her tubes tied after giving birth to their youngest daughter, Katie, but Jackie was convinced by her friends to reverse the procedure and have another baby. Maybe it would help them cope and Jackie decided that she wanted to do it I mean at first she was like "Mm, I don't know that might be a little bit too much but ultimately her and Warren decided that this is what they wanted to do and Jackie was quoted saying about their daughter Casey Rose quote she brings a heartbeat to this house again there was none she brought us back to life end quote Of course, nobody will ever be able to replace the children that they've lost, but to have another child to transfer some of that love to can really help give purpose and meaning. Jackie had been struggling a lot prior to giving birth to Casey, and she even contemplated taking her own life. She went on to say in the same interview, quote, I just wanted to be with my girls so bad that I got so emotional and so fixated on seeing them again. So the thought of being in this pain forever was just too much to handle, end quote. The fact that Jackie and Warren were able to come through on the other side and have another kid, start a foundation in memory of their girls, they just possess a strength that I don't know where it comes from. Honestly, it has to come from above. It has to come from their girls looking down on them, giving them the will to move forward. I could not begin to fathom losing all all of my children at the hands of somebody that I trusted with their lives. And Jackie has gone on to say that she feels at fault for maybe not seeing something or trusting Diane with her children, but ultimately it's not her fault. She had known Diane for 20 years and knew the type of mother she was. No one expected this to happen at all. It's easy to get caught up in the salacious details of this case. I mean, as I said, people get caught up in the headlines of PTA mom snaps or perfect mom drives drunk and all that. But keep in mind, innocent lives were lost. Four children were killed and one is left without a mother. And three men who were on the way to be with their families never made it. This is more than a news headline. This was a horrific crash that ended innocent lives. My heart truly goes out to everybody involved and everybody that lost someone in this crash. The Bastardis and their friend Daniel were just another car on the road and yet their lives were taken from them so suddenly. This case continues to drive me crazy. I do believe she was drunk, but I just don't understand Why the fact that she chose to get drunk with her kids in the car is something that will never I will never understand No matter how many times I listen to this case or hear about this case or it's explained to me I will just never understand her actions. I won't but with that we're gonna go ahead and wrap up this episode We will be back next week with two more episodes and I have another one coming out this week Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you in the water soon